And I invite you to follow along with me as we read now from God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church in verse 1 of chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray now and ask God to give us grace as we consider His Word. Let's pray. Father, thank You for speaking so clearly in the Word of God, both the Word of God made flesh in Jesus Christ and the Word of God written in the Old and New Testaments of the Scriptures. Father, we give You praise and thanksgiving. Our hearts are full of gratitude that You are a God who speaks. You have not remained silent. You have not remained distant and far off and separated from us. But You have spoken. You have drawn near in Christ. You have spoken clearly, God. You have spoken truly without error. You have spoken inspired by the Holy Spirit so that what we read here in this passage in Colossians is the very Word of God. We pray, Father, that You would help us to hear it rightly, which is with humble hearts that trust, humble hearts that are quick to turn from sin and to believe and to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask for grace, Father, to hear the Word of God now. Father, I pray that You would keep me from saying anything that would be untrue. Father, keep Your people from being led into error. Help them, God, to have discernment to hold fast to the truth, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name, confident that You hear us. Amen. There's an insightful scene from John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress that captures the heart of our passage uh, this morning. The scene involves a character called Mr. Muckrake. And as is the case with all of Bunyan's characters, the name tells this man's story. Mr. Muckrake lives in a dusty old room where he spends all of his time in the mud raking up sticks and straw off of the dirty floor. That's a rather sad way to live. But Mr. Muckrake's condition is actually worse than what it first appears. You see, suspended above Mr. Muckrake's head is this glistening, glorious crown. All Mr. Muckrake has to do is exchange his rake for the crown, and everything will change. Instead of sticks and straw, Mr. Muckrake will have life and light and joy. But Mr. Muckrake never makes that exchange. He keeps on raking in the muck and mire of that dusty old room. Why? We're intended to ask. Why does he do this? Well, the answer, friends, is Bunyan's insight into our passage. Mr. Muckrake is content with sticks and straw because he only ever looks downward. He never looks up. He never looks heavenward, to use Bunyan's language. And as a result of that, as a result of only ever looking downward, Mr. Muckrake misses the glory that would both redefine and redirect his life. That is Mr. Muckrake's failure, friends. His mind is set on the things of this world. His mind is set on the things of this earth. And therefore, he lives only for those things. Friends, that need for an upward or a heavenly perspective that Mr. Muckrake missed 
That need is Paul's focus here in Colossians chapter 3. For the last several paragraphs, Paul has warned the Colossians against the schemes of the false teachers, schemes that were earthly, worldly. He's urged them to be vigilant against man-made ideas and earthly regulations that would lead them away from Christ. But as we enter chapter 3, Paul shifts from warning to exhortation. He shifts from the negative to the positive. And this positive exhortation calls the Colossians to live for the things above, to look upward, so to speak. You see, it's the contrast between earthly things and heavenly things that drives this text. For all their boastful claims of spirituality, the false teachers were actually just like Mr. Muckrake. They were just living for the things of this earth. They only ever looked downward. And that's why Paul exhorts the Colossians as he does. That's what he exhorts them to avoid. Don't be like the false teachers. Don't be like Mr. Muckrake with your mind set on earthly things. Look up, so to speak. Look heavenward and remember that you've been raised up with Christ. You've been transferred already to His heavenly kingdom. So live today for the truth that already defines who you are. That's Paul's exhortation. So if we had to sum up this passage in in one sentence, this is what I would say. You can think of this sentence as the roadmap for the rest of the sermon. Here it is. Because of our union with Christ... Christians should pursue a heavenly mindset that reveals their secure identity and their confident hope. I'm going to say that again. Because of our union with Christ, Christians should pursue a heavenly mindset that reveals their secure identity and their confident hope. That's the whole paragraph in one sentence. Clearly, it's a loaded sentence. So... Let's take it piece by piece, focusing on the Christian's pursuit, identity, and hope. We start in verses 1 and 2 with the Christian's pursuit. The Christian's pursuit. You can see right away in your Bibles that Paul's aim is to encourage the Colossians to pursue a life that is oriented toward Christ. Notice that both verse 1 and verse 2 contain commands. Verse 1 says, seek the things above. And verse 2 says, set your mind on things above. So clearly, Paul wants the Colossians to do something. He wants them to take action. He wants them to raise their eyes upward and pursue a life that's oriented towards Christ. But if we jump straight to the pursuit, if we start with the action, then we miss something essential to Paul's teaching. Note carefully, friends, how verse 1 begins not with the command, but with a reminder. Look again, verse 1. If then, you have been raised with Christ. Now, Paul is not questioning the Colossians' salvation. He spent a good bit of time in chapter 2 reminding them that they have, in fact, been raised with Christ. Chapter 2, verse 12. You were buried with Christ in baptism so that you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God. So when Paul says, if you've been raised with Christ, he's not questioning the Colossians. Instead, he's urging them to remember the truth that already defines them. You see, the if in verse 1 is like a wake-up call. It's meant to make you go, if? Well, of course that's true. Yes, that's true. It's meant to get your attention and make you remember the truth that already defines you. And that's where we have to start in this passage, friends. This is really, I would say, the key to understanding this text. 
the Colossians should seek the things above not in order to raise themselves up to those heavenly things. No, they should seek the things above because they have been raised up in Christ. That's a huge difference. So we're going to talk a lot, brothers and sisters, we're going to talk a lot about spiritual growth in this message. How it's necessary, how it happens, what it means. But from the start, I, I want to be clear on this. As Christians, we pursue the things of God because God first pursued us in Christ. Let's keep that clear. May we never forget this. For the believer, the entirety of the Christian life is a response to what God has done in Christ. We're not trying to get heavenly things. We've already been given heavenly things in Jesus. And that's why we seek the things above. We seek, we strive, we pursue, all because God first pursued us by His grace. The Gospel always begins with God's movement towards us, not our movement towards God. So, with that Gospel reminder firmly in view, now we're ready for the command. Again, verse 1, Paul writes, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above. Friends, the command to seek has to do with the desires of the heart. What the old Puritans used to call the affections. As Christians, our desire should be for heavenly things. Our hearts should be turned toward the values and the interests of God's kingdom. And our lives then should be oriented towards pursuing those heavenly realities. That's what it means to seek the things above. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 6 when Jesus teaches His disciples that they should not worry about food and clothing? Do you remember that? He says, don't, don't worry. Look at the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. God provides for them. How much more will He provide for you? Jesus says. But do you remember what Jesus says towards the end of Matthew 6? He gives essentially the same command that we find here in verse 1. Jesus says, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You see, the Apostle Paul is not giving us a new command. He's just following on from the Lord Jesus. Seek the things above. Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first to have your desires oriented towards Christ. That's Paul's command in verse 1. But he goes on, friends, in the next phrase to define what those things are. This is so helpful. At least it is to me. Paul does not leave us with some vague notion of heavenly things. No, he clearly defines for us what these things are. Notice again what he writes, verse 1. Seek the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. You see, the center of heavenly attention is the exalted Lord Jesus Christ. People will often say, you'll often hear people say, I wonder what heaven is like. Well, friends, here's your answer. Heaven is a theater of glory. And there at center stage is the risen Christ. Having finished His work of redemption, Christ is now seated at the right hand of the Father where He has received all authority in heaven and on earth. And from that heavenly throne, Christ holds all things together by the word of His power. He sustains His people as the head of the body, the church. He nourishes His people as the source of their life. And He receives the praise of all creatures since the Father has triumphed over the powers and principalities in Him. Do you hear the emphasis here? The emphasis is on Christ. 
Listen, the things above are not streets of gold and lavish mansions. It's nothing less than the person and work of Christ. That's the things above. It's Him. Our interest should be for His glory. For He is the one who is seated at the Father's right hand. So it's a good question to regularly ask ourselves, brothers and sisters. What is it that drives the desires of my heart? What is, what is it that animates my desire? What am I living for, aiming at, striving after? Is it only earthly things? Material things? Self-oriented things? Or am I seeking after the Lord Jesus? Seeking to grow in my knowledge of Him? My trust in Him? My obedience to Him? My proclamation of Him? my commitment to Him in His body, the church. What is it that I'm after in life? It is very easy, isn't it? Even as Christians, to put something other than Christ at the center of our pursuit. We don't do this consciously all the time, but it's just easy to drift. I think that's why the writer to the Hebrews says in chapter 2 of Hebrews, be careful that you not drift away It tends to be rare that a Christian runs away from the truth. That happens, but it tends to be rare. Most of the time, we get in trouble because we drift. It's so easy to put something else at the center. So just ask yourself, what am I aiming at in life? What am I desiring, grasping for? What is it that I want? Is it merely earthly things? Or is it to grow in the knowledge of Christ, my trust in Christ, my obedience to Christ? It's so easy to put something else in the center. And that's why... This exhortation from the Apostle Paul is so important and so necessary. If we've been raised with Christ, which we have by God's grace for the believer, then let us also seek the things above where Christ is. Even so, we're faced with a question at this point. Let's say we recognize our need to grow in seeking the things above. I know that was certainly my response as I prepared this week for this message. I recognize my need to grow. I often lose sight of the things above, and I I very easily drift into living for earthly things, and perhaps you can relate to that this morning. So, let's say we all recognize our need to grow. How do we do that? Where does change begin? How do we grow in seeking the things above? Well, notice... Paul's next command in verse 2. It sounds similar, but there's a world of wisdom here that can help us. Verse 2, Paul writes, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So if the first command had to do with the desires of the heart, then the command in verse 2 has to do with the orientation of the will. It's not so much just what we think about. It is that. It's not less than that, but it is more than that. It's also what occupies our attention and then leads to action. So I want you to notice the connection that Paul is drawing between these two commands, seek and set. Again, they sound similar. One translation does translate them with the same word. I don't remember which one that is. The the commands sound similar, but there's a connection here that's actually foundational. To put it very simply, the connection is this. You will seek after what your mind is set on. You will seek after what your mind is set on. If your mind is set on earthly things, then you'll seek after earthly things. If your mind is set on the things above, 
then you'll seek the things above where Christ is. This is actually a repeated emphasis throughout the Apostle Paul's ministry. You can find it in many of his letters. The way a person thinks is closely connected with the way he or she lives. We tend to think that the way we change our behavior is just by instituting new habits, but that's not actually true. It's to change what we think, to change what we believe about the world. Think again about Paul's expression of this truth in Romans 12. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewal of your mind. How do you avoid conformity to the world? By having your mind renewed in the knowledge of Christ. You will seek what your mind is set on. The way a person thinks is closely connected with the way he or she lives. And so we come back to one of those questions that's good to regularly ask ourselves. What am I setting my mind on? What receives the lion's share of my attention? Earthly things or the things above where Christ is? And and listen, let me remind you, friends, Sometimes those earthly things, in fact, a lot of times, those earthly things are not necessarily sinful or wrong. Paul is not saying everything earthly is bad. Paul is not opposed to the material world. God made everything and he called it good. Okay, so Paul's not opposed to the world because, of its, because it's earthly. Rather, Paul's point is that earthly things were never meant to be ultimate things. So it might be something good in and of itself, that we mistakenly elevate to an ultimate position. Career. Family. Ministry. Personal fulfillment. Satisfaction. Personal growth. Advancement. Whatever. It could be something that's very good. Those are good things in and of themselves. But if they become the focus of our minds, then we'll spend all of our time seeking after them and then we'll lose sight of Christ. What is my mind set on? What do I focus on with the lion's share of my attention? Friends, whatever the answer is, that's what you'll be seeking after with your life. But I hope we also see how this opens up the pathway for growth. If we want to grow in seeking the things of Christ, then where do we need to start? With the renewal of our minds, by setting our minds on things above. So I've said it numerous times in this series. I will keep saying it because there's two chapters left. It is never a waste of time to grow in the knowledge of Christ. It is never a waste of time to study, meditate on, think about, discuss, and delight in the things of God. It's never a waste of time. You will be a better employee, spouse, parent, friend, church member. You will grow, in other words, as you grow in the knowledge of Christ. And this passage tells us why that's true. It's because having our minds renewed invariably leads to having our lives changed. So set your mind on things above, friends. And by God's grace, you'll find that His Word, applied by His Spirit, empowers you to seek the things above as well. So that's the first part of the roadmap to this passage. Because of our union with Christ, Christians should pursue a heavenly mindset. Let's consider... Now the second piece of that summary, which is the Christian's identity. We just saw the Christian's pursuit. Let's let's think for a moment about the Christian's identity. In verse 3, Paul provides the foundation for the commands 
Why should Christians set their minds on things above? Verse 3 gives you the answer. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Again, we see that union with Christ is really the heart of Paul's ministry to the Colossians. And remember, friends, union with Christ describes that vital connection that exists between the Lord Jesus and the believer. Union with Christ means that Christ is in me, I am in Christ, and therefore He provides all that I need for life and godliness. That's union with Christ. It's a profound biblical reality. And it is the essential piece of Paul's ministry in this letter. The reason the Colossians should kick the false teachers to the curb is because they're already complete in Christ. We don't need what you're selling, in other words. They are in Christ. He is in them. And therefore, there's no need for earthly rules and regulations. Christ and Christ alone is enough. But even as we've seen that all throughout this letter so far, verse 3, here in chapter 3, verse 3 does highlight in a unique way two specific applications of union with Christ. The first is the idea of victory. Notice the very stark statement that begins verse 3. For you have died, Paul says. Now clearly, Paul is not speaking about physical death since the Colossians are very much still alive. Rather, Paul's point has to do with victory over sin and sin's henchman, death. When the Lord Jesus died at the cross, He did so in order to crush the power of death forever. By taking on death only to rise again, Christ proved once and for all that sin would not have the final word for the people of God. Death would not win. You see, that was the paradoxical glory of the cross. The moment that appeared to be Jesus' defeat was actually His victory. He took on death in order to crush death. And since believers are in Christ, Paul says, they participate by faith in Christ's victory. Sin will have no hold on those who belong to Christ. In Christ, believers have died to the things of this world. So why would we still live for the things of this world? The false teachers want the Colossians to follow earthly regulations in hopes of finding victory over sin. But Paul says, you don't need to find victory. You are victorious. You died with Christ. And He died to defeat sin. So sin is defeated for you. His victory is your victory. Brothers and sisters, I I just have to ask you, do you believe that this morning? If you are a Christian today, if you're repenting of your sin and trusting in Christ alone to save you, do you believe that His victory is your victory? You can be assured that Christ has already accomplished the victory over sin that you need. His victory is your victory. Sin will not have the final word in your life. We absolutely need to take sin seriously as Christians, but we should do so optimistically, not pessimistically. Sin doesn't win. Jesus wins because He's alive and reigning from heaven's throne. Even death will not be the end. You have died with Christ in His death, which means that you will live with Christ in His resurrection. His victory is your victory. You have died, Paul says. And listen, brothers and sisters, that should change the way we think about spiritual growth. That should change the way we pursue the things above. We're not trying to attain victory through our own effort. I wish someone would have told me this when I became a Christian. 
I'm not trying to attain victory through my own effort. Rather, we're striving to live out the victory Christ has already won. It's a huge difference. One is animated by fear and guilt. The other is animated by grace and gratitude. So whatever struggle, specific struggle, I face at this moment as a believer, I can face it with confidence. That's why we read Philippians 1.6 earlier in the service. Paul says, I'm sure that God will finish it. How can he be sure? Because Jesus is alive. Because Christ died once and for all. And that's how we know that God will finish His work in each of His people because we are united to Christ by faith. And that confidence, brothers and sisters, keeps us going. Christ's victory becomes the very strength we need to continue walking by faith, striving after holiness, standing on God's Word. So when Paul says in verse 3, for you have died, he's reminding you brothers and sisters, of the victory that believers have through union with Christ. His victory is your victory. The second application of union with Christ flows from the victory and it focuses on the idea of security. Security. Notice the remainder of verse 3. For you have died, Paul writes, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So you can hear the emphasis on resurrection, on new life with Christ. You have died, Paul says, but now you are alive in the Lord Jesus. His death was your victory and His resurrection is now your life. But what about that word hidden? What does it mean that the believer's life is hidden with Christ? Well, it's not about concealment. Rather, the idea is about security. The word here means for something to be hidden so that it's kept safe and therefore won't be lost. If a thief breaks into your home, it's the things that are well hidden that are secure. They won't be taken. They're safe. And so it is with the believer's life with Christ. It cannot be lost. Christ Himself is the security. He guards those who belong to Him so that no one can steal away their life. Friends, again, this is why the writer to the Hebrews says that Jesus died once never to die again. If He can't die again, what does that mean for you and me? That we won't lose our lives in Him. He's finished. He's done it. You see, this is why Paul in verse 1 reminded us that Christ is seated at the right hand of God. It was to encourage us with the reality of Jesus' absolute authority. He reigns over everything with unrivaled power. Nothing exists outside of Christ's sovereign rule. And that, friends, is why it's good news that the believer's life is hidden with Christ. Because He's the one who has all authority and rule. Christ Himself will keep His people secure. He will not lose a single one of them. Ever. And so I want you to see the incredible bond that there is in verse 3 between the believer, Christ, and God the Father. I sometimes teach a short little class on the doctrine of the Trinity, and one of the questions that I get is, how is the doctrine of the Trinity practical? What difference does it make on Tuesday? It makes this difference. Are you ready? I want you to see the incredible bond that exists between the believer and Christ and God the Father. This is the nearly unthinkable application of union with Christ. Think of the bond between Christ and God the Father. Can that bond ever be broken? No, absolutely not. 
The father delights in his son, and the son delights in his father. They are bound to one another in eternal fellowship and love. They cannot be parted from one another, for they both share the nature of God together. They cannot be parted. Now, think of the bond between the believer and Christ. Where is our life, brothers and sisters? It is hidden with Christ in God. The believer's life is bound up with the Lord Jesus. And that means the bond between God the Father and God the Son is now shared with those who are united to the Son. The same eternal bond that keeps the Father and the Son together is now the same bond that holds God's people to God the Father. As sure as the Father loves His Son, so also will the Father love those who are in His Son by faith. They will not be lost, for the Father and the Son will never be parted from one another. Friends, listen to me. It is the love of God the Father for God the Son that defines and secures the believer's life forever. They cannot be torn apart. So, Christian, the next time you are tempted to doubt the Father's love and care for you, think of God the Son. Think of how deeply the Father loves His Son. And then remember the reality of the Gospel. That very same love has been given to you in Christ. If the Father cannot be torn from His Son, then the Son's people will never be torn from the Father. It is the love of God Himself that binds us to God. And it cannot be broken. Brothers and sisters, these are the unspeakable riches of who we are in Christ. This is our identity in the Lord Jesus that He gives to us, that He shares with us. We are victorious through His death and we are secure in His Sonship. All that He is, He gives to those who trust Him. And so, I will ask you the question of Colossians. Why would you look anywhere else for life? Why would you go anywhere else? Seek the things above. That's what Paul's saying. That's the Christian's identity. We come to verse 4. We've considered the pursuit. We've just seen the identity. Now the final piece to the roadmap of this text, the Christian's hope. The Christian's hope. Notice again verse 4, where Paul continues to expound the believer's union with Christ. But he does so now with a focus on the last day. Notice the First phrase of verse 4. Now when Christ, who is your life, appears. Again, we find Paul singing the same note. By faith, believers are united to Christ. And that union is so deep that Paul can say Christ is your life. It's not merely that Christ is in His people, which is gloriously true. It's also that Christ is their very life. In Him we live and move and have our being. Christ is the source of the believer's life, the aim of life, the guarantee of life, the foundation of life. Christ is your life, Paul is saying. What all does that mean? I'm not really sure, but I know it means you should worship Him. That's how deep the union goes. Paul can say that Christ is your life. But it's actually the return of Christ that receives Paul's focus here in verse 4. When Christ appears, Paul says. When He appears. The idea, friends, is one of revelation. Revelation. There is a day coming when the entire world will see the glory that believers now behold by faith. 
There is a day coming when there will be no question as to who is supreme. There is a day coming when every person will recognize that it has been Christ and Christ alone upholding not only the entire universe, but also their lives, even when they were spending those lives defying Him. That day is coming. And for the Christian, that day is as certain as the sun rising. Notice that Paul says when in verse 4. He doesn't say if. He said if in verse 1. He doesn't say if in verse 4. He says when Christ appears. You see, this is the controlling reality of the New Testament. This is the truth that makes all the other truths true. Jesus is alive and He's coming again. And His return is soon. Whatever else we might experience and do in this world, it must be understood in light of this truth that the risen Christ is coming again. But Paul presses this a bit further at the end of the verse. He connects the return of Christ with the final glory of the Christian. Notice again what he says, verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Again, we see the unbreakable bond that exists between the believer and the Lord Jesus. For Christians, we have died with Christ, we have been raised with Christ, and we will be glorified with Christ. It's that sharing of glory that Paul is getting at in verse 4. What Christ will receive on the final day, He will share with His people. So when Christ returns, He will receive from God the glory and praise of all creation. He will receive the glory of having redeemed God's people and delivered them into God's kingdom. That alone is incredible to think about, but Paul says more. Not only will Christ be glorified on that day, but His people will share in His glory with Him. In fact, I would go so far as to even say that His people sharing in His glory is part of His glory. We will be like Him because we will see Him as He is. How will all the world know for all eternity that Christ is mighty to save? Because the people whom He redeems will be transformed into His image. We will be like Him because we will see Him as He is. The church will see Christ, and in seeing Christ, He will share with us the glory that He receives from His Father. And so, friends, there is nowhere else to look for life and godliness. That is Paul's point in every passage of this letter. There's nowhere else to look for life and godliness. You don't need anything beyond Christ. The Colossians don't need what the false teachers are selling. They don't need their earthly ideas and man-made regulations. And we don't need anything beyond Christ in Christ alone. Meaning, nothing else. The Christian's future, the Christian's destiny even, is glory with Christ. When Christ returns, those who are in Him by faith will share in the glory that He receives from the Father. And this then is the great hope of the church. This is the great hope of every Christian. Since we are united to Christ in a bond that cannot be broken, we can live every day with the certain hope of glory. Every day. Whatever that day brings. Illness. Besetting sin. Heartache. Suffering. Despair. Loss. Uncertainty. The Christian will face all of those things in this life. They will be challenging, even painful. They will assault your faith. And yet the hope of the Gospel is that none of those things will win. Or better yet, 
the hope of the gospel is that none of those things will ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I know it doesn't talk about the love of God in verses 1 through 4, but that's the theological truth that Paul is getting at. He is expounding the love of God. And it's the love of God for the Son that he gives to those who are united to the Son. That, my friends, that love that cannot be broken is the Christian's hope. And so we've put, we've, we've put all the pieces together in, in this text. Pursuit, identity, hope. Because of our union with Christ, Christians should pursue a heavenly mindset that reveals their secure identity and their confident hope. The gospel frees us, brothers and sisters, to seek the things above. Not because we're looking for hope, but because we have hope that cannot be shaken. And that shift in perspective makes all the difference when it comes to living the Christian life. That shift from trying to attain to living out of. That shift is what Mr. Muckrake in Pilgrim's Progress didn't do. He only ever looked downward. He lived in the muck and mire because his mind was set on earthly things. But by God's grace, that's not true of Christ's people. God has delivered His children from such a sad and dreary existence and He's raised them up in Christ, even uniting them to His Son by faith. So, in response, brothers and sisters, may we lift our eyes to see the glory of union with Christ. And may we set our minds on Him for the glory of His name and for the good of our souls. Amen.